This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. If you've been listening to our podcast for any period of time, you'll have heard Dave talk about his love of fly fishing and how he turned that passion into a successful podcast and book. Today on the podcast, our podcast, we're happy to have Dave's best fly fishing buddy, co-host of Two Guys in a River podcast, and co-author of the Fly Fisher's Book of List, Steve Mathewson. Steve is equally crazy about fly fishing, but today we're not talking about fly fishing. Instead, we're talking about storytelling, something Steve has mastered and written on extensively. Steve is pastor of Cross Life Church in Libertyville, Illinois. He is the author of The Art of Preaching Old Testament. He is also near completion of a PhD in linguistics from the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. Welcome, Steve, to our podcast. We're so happy to have you here and Dave talks about you, so it's finally fun to put a voice to the name. Well, thanks. It's great to be here, and and I'll try to talk about story and not fly fishing, since that's the topic (laughs) today. (laughs) I I think the two probably overlap in some regard, but yes. They uh, do. We have a lot of fly fishing stories. (laughs) (laughs) When we talk about areas of progress, which we are moving to now, um, Dave also often shares something about fly fishing. So we'll see this week if he is going to share (laughs) anything about fly fishing. Are you, Dave? What's your area of progress for the week? I am not going to share anything about that, although I should. Did you ever finish organizing your flies? I know in the spring, that's what you were working on. You know what I did? I got to about 50% and then I just threw the rest of them into the two remaining fly boxes. So I, that's an ongoing, (laughs) that's an ongoing task that I haven't, I haven't completed yet, but I do feel good about the two boxes that are organized. (laughs) The problem is that every time you go out on the river, it's a different time of the year. And so you need different flies and uh, Steve, it just goes on and on, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It sure does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where have you made progress i've decided to give up two things so last night i was frustrated because jan and i are about ready to leave for a trip on thursday and i still hadn't mowed the lawn she said you know dave why why are you still mowing the lawn she said you know you're a successful businessman and i i don't know that that's true but she said you don't need to mow your own lawn and so i texted my neighbor who has two kids and today the lawn is already mowed it was mowed by 12 o'clock noon and so now I don't have to do that before we leave and that's uh, that to me is huge progress huge progress that is huge progress and bravo to Jana for recommending it and helping you see (laughs) that you can let something go and also why is it when you leave on vacation you always have this laundry list this long laundry list of things that you have to get done before you leave and Mowing the lawn is always on there. It's a pain. So I'm glad you hired out. What what was the other thing you decided to give up? So I decided to give up editing podcasts. So when Steve and I first started podcasting, was that 2015, Steve? I think it was, right? Yeah, I think so. Yes. And we were not the first fly fishing podcast, not by a long stretch, but we were probably within the first 10 or 15 that were published. Now there's probably 
10,000 podcasts on fly fishing. <laughs> but I, I learned how to edit. I learned Adobe Audition. And so I've edited every podcast where we have 250 some episodes and all of our Journey 66 episodes. But I decided to give that up and we found someone to do it. And now I'm really, really happy. Enough about me. Melissa, <laughs> what are you, where's your progress? I had to think about this one, but I decided that it is how I'm approaching my Instagram posting again. I had started to become kind of complacent about posting on Instagram and my engagement was starting to drop off. And I started to reflect on the fact that I just wasn't writing anymore. I was just doing short, pithy captions, but I wasn't really writing and engaging my audience. And so over the past week, I've really worked on going back to the McGillicuddy basics of telling a story, trying to make it relate to my audience, and then asking a question. And my engagement has just taken off again. You know, I had yesterday, I think I had over 220 comments on a post. Granted, it was a controversial topic. And then earlier in the week, I talked about small town living, and I probably have close to 100 comments, which is, that's a lot of comments, and very few of them are by me. So it just made me realize, again, the value of writing, along with posting a picture on Instagram, and also engaging your audience on some level. So I think that that's progress. And I really learned this week that I need to focus on engagement again, because Instagram is changing things again. The CEO said that Instagram is no longer a photo sharing platform. They're going to be a video and commerce platform, which means that they're going to prioritize video and shopping commerce over just pictures. And so the only way you'll ever be seen is if you have high engagement and they'll boost that to the top of people's feed. So I'm, I'm working on that. But ultimately, Dave, I think you're right. Like I don't own Instagram, therefore I don't own my followers. And really, I probably should have started building an email list seven years ago, like you told me to. It's never too late, right? Yeah, right. And yeah. that's so interesting that it's, it's going to move from an image sharing platform to a video and e-commerce platform. That That is a big shift. That is going to destroy well, it won't destroy it. I'm, I'm sure they have visions for for largeness and you know and and, and growing b- even bigger. But it will so be destroyed, think- like Facebook will be has been destroyed, right? It's going to yeah. be so saturated with advertisements and just kind of the the noise that it's it's no longer going to be as valuable to people. And I think they're trying. They say that they're doing it because people are on TikTok, people are on YouTube, and video consumption is up. But there's a huge market of people that don't consume YouTube and don't consume TikTok that are on Instagram. So anyway, it will be interesting to see how it plays out, but I'm preparing for the shift. All right. So back to you, Steve. We're so happy to have you on this podcast. Can you tell us first, our audience, about the book that you've written and also about your decision to put out a second edition to your book? Sure. It's kind of a niche book. It's for pastors, for teachers, those who, uh, those who work with the, the stories or the narratives of the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. So uh, yeah, it's, it's called The Art of Preaching Old Testament Narrative. So 
a number of years ago, I realized that the weakest part of my understanding of uh, the Bible or scripture is, is the narrative parts. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of times uh, we kind of think the narratives are for kids. And so uh, those who, who go to church, uh, the, the kids go to Sunday school or to, to some sort of a class. And usually it's the little kids who are, who are learning the Bible stories and that the big kids uh, upstairs are, are working in other parts of the Bible. But honestly, the stories are really the most sophisticated part of literature. So in a lot of ways, I wrote the book, first of all, for myself, it, it actually grew out of another, out of the first doctoral dissertation I did. I'm just a glutton for punishment, I, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's my torturous uh, way to learn. So anyway, I, I wrote on that topic and it was helpful to me and and uh, there was a publisher thought that might be helpful to others. So that's how the whole project came about. And, and really in the process, you know, I, I did a lot of research, learned a lot about storytelling, not only in the Bible, but also uh, just the wider culture. What's the thesis of your book? If you were to answer that question to somebody that said, what's the big idea of your book? What would you, what would you tell them? Yeah, I would say that both to understand and then to preach or teach uh, the stories of the Bible, you have to understand, and I use an acronym called ACTS, A-C-T-S. So think of the acts of a play, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. And really my thesis is that if you're going to understand and then teach these narratives, you have to understand the acts. So A stands for action or plot. And uh, that's really critical. I mean, plots based on a couple of major things. One is a crisis. Every story has some kind of a crisis. So you can call it a problem or a challenge, but if you don't have that, you don't have a story. And then that crisis is somehow resolved. And that can be a happy ending. That can be a sad ending. By the way, literary scholars come up with these terms that I, I think mm -hmm. are just designed so we can charge people tuition, but they call uh, a happy ending, they call it a, a comedy, which is kind of funny. So this isn't Stephen Colbert type humor. This is just, uh, you know, it's a happy ending. And then a, a sad ending is called a tragedy. Now, when you look at these, uh, you know, kind of a crisis in a, in a story, you're looking at the action, you want to see what the crisis is, and, and then how it's resolved. I mean, this, it isn't just a, a neat story cut and dried oh here's the crisis there's a resolution sometimes it, it kind of happens uh, in you know in stages so maybe helpful to think of it that way all right so that's the action then the, the c would stand for characters and and that seems obvious i mean you, you don't have a story without characters but really what you want to see and if you're trying to tell a story a good story, you're going to see how the characters develop. And you're also going to see the role that they play in the story. And then the, the T would be talking, a highly technical term. Uh, <laughs> but in stories in, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but also in modern stories, I mean, dialogue is what often will drive a story. And that's often uh, kind of the clue to what a story means or where it's headed. And sometimes we read stories and we think it's all action, but a lot of times it's it's dialogue. So if you're a storyteller or a writer, you have to learn how to use dialogue. And then the final one would be setting. It can be kind of the, the time and place uh, where this happens. And of course, that influences how you understand the story. So 
uh, yeah, I'd say the big idea of, of my book is to understand and to tell a good story. Uh, you, you have to understand that the action, the characters, the talking, and the setting, those are kind of the four big buckets. And you, you put those together and you get the word acts, A-C-T-S. So I have a question for you, and that is related to action. And you talked about the difference between tragedy and comedy. Do you think that there are one is that one is easier to write a tragedy or a comedy and are there more tragedies in the bible or comedies <laughs> what happened yeah, it's a great question i don't know if i've thought much about that i seems like there's a, a fair number of both that's that's yeah. not a very precise answer no. but I, I don't know if if i would I feel like it's weighted one way or the other. Honestly, I don't know. I suppose it might be personal preference, whether it's easier to write a yeah tragedy or a, or a comedy. Man, that's a great question. I'm going to have to give that a little bit more thought. I, I think with a, with a happy ending, what you have to make sure is that you, you really deal with the crisis well. I think with a, with a tragedy, yeah, I mean, that, that has its challenges as well. I think you have to show... Yeah, how that sad outcome affects, you know, all the characters. And is that it? Is there any hope or not? What I love about what you're saying right now is that there's complexity to storytelling. Even the resolution, even if it's a comedy or a tragedy, there has to be depth and substance and even complexity to the writing. Would you agree with that? A couple of years ago, there was a novel uh, where the crawdads sang uh, Delia Owens, and you know there there were things about that book that maybe I didn't like, but wow, it was it was well written, and you know in that story you you actually have a couple of storylines. That's the other thing as well. When you tell a story, sometimes it could have multiple storylines, and so or or maybe I should say multiple. Let's let's stick with multiple crises. Hmm. Uh, one of the crises in that story is, so there's this young woman, Kaya, I think that's how you say it, Kaya Kia, I didn't listen to it online, I actually read it, <laughs> uh, but she's charged with murdering a young man by the name of Chase Andrews, and one of the crises in the story is, you know, will she be convicted or not? And hey, spoiler alert, this has been out there for two years, so if you're listening to this and you want to know, just plug your ears, but uh <laughs> No, she was not convicted. She was exonerated. Well, then there's a new kind of a new crisis. It's not so much a crisis in the story, but it's a crisis for the reader as well. Who, who committed that murder? And, Hmm. you know, at the end of the story, uh, that the final scene, uh, reveals who committed the murder. And it is, is a little bit shocking in a way. I won't give that, that part away, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what you deal with with stories there. There is a complexity. Not everything is neat and tidy. And I think that's true when we're telling maybe our own story. You know, some people say truth is stranger than fiction. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I've, I've heard some crazy stories that I don't think anybody could have made up. And, and I think that that's probably what keeps the, the reader engaged is when there's complexity and there's that tension, that ongoing tension. We tell the writers we work with all the time that you got to create tension when you're writer, writing oh. the reader's reading. And can you touch on a little bit of those, those strategies for creating tension in storytelling? 
Yeah, first of all, I agree with you 100%. I, I think that's where most people fail at storytelling. That's where I fail at times is, you know, inability to maintain tension. I mean, when, when tension's over, the story's over whether you're done telling it or not. Right, right. And so it really is a constant effort to keep raising tension. Can I give you an example of that? Absolutely. All right, so I came across this a few years ago. This is uh, this is a little piece written by a guy by the name of Paul Arant, A-U-R-A-N-D-T. And he was, for a while, he was a writer for Paul Harvey, uh, the late Paul Harvey. He was such a great storyteller on the radio. And, and anyway, uh, let me just read. This is just a short account by Paul Arant as to how he came to work for Paul Harvey. This is what he said. He says, I've always been a fan of Paul Harvey. The quality of his voice and the timing of his words never failed to mesmerize me, even as a young boy who understood little of the news. I listened to him every day at the encourage of my parents. I love the dramatic pauses, the careful, warm pacing. Anyway, I knew for quite some time that Paul Harvey, my childhood hero, was looking for a writer. One day, in an impulse, I sat down and wrote uh, a piece kind of a rest of the story column like Paul Harvey did, just as I imagined he would have written it. And when I finished, I showed it to my mom and she was impressed. Uh, she said, it sounds just like him. Well, to make a long story short, I applied for it, got the job. I had to switch my career, but I'm really having fun. Oh, there's something else you might be interested in learning about Mr. Harvey. When you work for somebody, you learn things about them that no one else knows. Paul Harvey is not his complete name. I don't tell anybody you heard it from me, but Harvey is his middle name. He dropped his last name because it's difficult to spell and pronounce. I kept it. I'm his son. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> That's it, great. It, isn't that terrific? And, you know, so often the temptation is to lead out with the, you know, with the aha moment and say, uh, just so you know, Paul Harvey is my father, or, or I'm an editor for Paul Harvey, and he happens to be my dad. Here's how it happened. But that's not how stories work. They, they, they find that piece of information, and and they hold it. You know, it's, it's called strategic delay. And so, that's I think that's the challenge when we're telling a story to uh, maintain that tension. Now, yeah, th there are times where. Uh, maybe a piece of that crisis gets resolved, but then then there's another one, or maybe there's an overarching kind of a looming crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. So when you talk about characters, what what do you want writers to understand about character building? What what do they need to know when they're writing a story about building a character, and what don't they do well when they actually start to write characters into a story? Sure. It's like a lot of, a lot of storytelling. It has to be subtle. And what that means is even using dialogue, what the characters say, instead of just saying whatever the character's name is, Harvey. Huh? Yeah, because I just talked about Paul <laughs> Harvey. There we go. So I just use that. You know, Harvey was an angry man. Well, okay, you could do that, but better to show that if you can by uh, you know, something that he did, something that he said. Uh, so trying to paint characters, not just by describing them as the storyteller, but 
but using their words and using their actions so that at the end of a chapter, you don't even have to say Harvey was an angry man. It's like <laughs> you, your readers, <laughs> yeah, they, they can't help but come to that conclusion. Yeah. So that, that's, I think that's one of the, the ways that you do that. Why is that so difficult to do for most writers? It, I, I guess it's because it takes an added effort to, um, to take that next step of thinking, how am I going to show this? And that's, that takes time. Uh, is there anything else that you would add? Yeah, to that? it really does. It's, it's, I, I think we live in a culture that, you know, and, and I live here in the North suburbs of Chicago and, and even a lot of the, the people in the church that I serve are, you know, they're, they're scientists, they're engineers and man, we like kind of like the cold, hard facts, you know, give me mm. a bullet point list. Give me the, give me the data points. And I think we tend to do that when we write, you know, we, we kind of dump information and storytellers though they find a way to package that information and that's you know when it comes to characters that's what you have to do you could i i think it'd be good to come up with a list and say this is this is what my characters like mm -hmm. she is this she is that he is this he is that but but then after you do that trying to figure out when you tell the story all right so what what scenes are there i'm going to share to convey those ideas what what did this character say? I mean, if, you, if you're writing a nonfiction account, then you actually have that information. If you're writing fiction, uh, you you make that up, although a lot of that's still based on what you know about people. So yeah, I, I'd say identify those things, make a list, but then figure out how you can communicate that without saying that this character really struggled with envy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Does the Bible do a good job of that? There's a uh, there's a wonderful Jewish scholar by the name of Robert Alter. He taught for years at Cal Berkeley, probably still does, uh, maybe as an emeritus professor. But he he said that that dialogue uh, carries uh, a large freight of meaning in these stories, and uh, you know a lot of the characterization was done just by. Yeah, you, you listen to dialogue, you listen to what the characters say, and you start to get a, a picture. In fact, it's interesting that the Bible is pretty economical when it comes to character description. You know, if you read a modern novel, you go on for a paragraph or half a page describing what a character looked like. And uh, Bible stories don't do that. Uh, they, they tend to show more than more than tell you, you know, there, there's no throwaway line. So if there's something said about a character's physical appearance, uh, that, that really plays into the story. But for the most part, you, you just get dialogue, you, you see how they behave, and that gives you insight into their character. So the dialogue that relates to the T and Acts, which is talking, and can, what what do people miss when they're doing dialogue? Dave and I have done a couple of workshops on this, but I'd love to hear from your expertise. Where do people go wrong with dialogue, and how can you up your game with dialogue writing? Honestly, I, I think that may be the hardest part of, of telling the story. Uh, might not seem so at first, but, but getting the right of dialogue it's i think one of the ways to up your game is to read good good stories i mean it, it seems so self-evident but man i've i've learned so much about writing and, and even writing stories by by reading good stories and kind of get some of these things intuitively but 
if, if you read enough of them and you really pay attention and ask yourself, so what's the writer doing here and what didn't the writer do? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it helps you to say, you know what, I, I need to keep the, I need to keep the dialogue, you know, brief uh, characters can't ramble on and on. Like we all tend to do in our own speech. And if the character rambles, that may be a place where you just have to say it. You don't want to model that. <laughs> so I, I think, yeah, keeping things concise. I think one of the hard parts too is is trying to use what we call idioms or colloquial language. You know, if I, I wouldn't I wouldn't write a novel about somebody from, you know, from the south from Alabama just because I, you know, although they might fascinate me, it's like I, that's not my world. I, I've you know I've lived in Illinois, I've lived in Montana. Uh, even then, sometimes I feel like my my background so eclectic it's and and then you're locked into a certain age and so uh, wow if you're writing I I think one of the hardest things to do if you're a writer and you're 40 50 60 and uh, and all of a sudden you've got teens in your story was it Stephanie Meyer that did the Twilight series a few years ago and I think wow what what a challenge because you have to you have to sound like a you know, a 15-year-old when you're 40 or you're 50 or you're 60. You can see so, where research becomes really important. If you're oh, really serious about telling good stories, you got to slow down and listen to the person who you're wanting to give voice to and take notes of it, you know, read books, listen to documentaries. Is, <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. yeah, it just sounds like, yeah, you just sit down and kind of sketch out start telling the story and, and there's a time where you can do that but but that might be your first draft but you're right there has to be a lot of research into how people think how people talk uh, yeah before you're ready to tell that story well so dave i'll let you ask the next question but i'm going to finish up this series of questions and have you talk a little bit about setting we had a writer recently talk about an encounter he had with his grandfather on his death he was near near death and it actually took place on the day of his wedding and it was such an interesting Mm. contradistinction between you know a marriage ceremony and kind of being with his grandfather at his final moments and that way I thought that the setting actually was really powerful Um, but can you talk a little bit more about how using setting intentionally can enhance storytelling I I think there's so many good examples in in literature it's it's hard to know uh, where to begin but I it's recently reading a story and I'm trying to remember the story, but it, it, it started at night and it happened at night. And you, you realize this is more than, uh, yes, it, it happened in the, the dark hours or you know, when the sun was down, but that was kind of a frame for the whole story. You know, I think of Cormac McCarthy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who's a, a, a great writer. His stuff is, is really dark. I, it wasn't wasn't McCarthy I was reading, but you know I, I think of you know, his book. What is it called? The Road, and, yes. yeah. and, and just the setting of that is really it, it communicates something. Yes, so I, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and and probably there's a distinction too if you're if you're doing fiction or if you're doing nonfiction. But you know if, if you're telling a story about an experience in your life, I I think it's it's smart to stop and think a lot about the setting and maybe what what's the setting going to be for you know for sharing that that could be a time setting my my brother-in-law shortly after he was 70 discovered that he was switched at birth 
and, and that's an amazing story. By the way, I just let out with that because this is a podcast. I don't have time to develop it, but, <laughs> but you know what, one of the key, one of the things that makes that story so compelling is that he didn't find this out until he was 70 and both his birth parents had died. And my father-in-law, his, you know, his dad turns out not his biological dad had died. And, and so he's learning this, you know, much later in life after years of, of saying to my wife, his, his youngest sister, yeah, look at this picture. You know, how come I'm the guy that looks like the odd one out or, <laughs> you know, I think so differently than everybody else. And then we just all said, yeah, but you're, you're the oldest, you know, oldest children are, are awesome. I'm, I'm an oldest child. But yeah. Oldest children are different. <laughs> so I, I think a part of his story is, is, he's told that and even as i've shared that with others is is capitalizing on that setting and, and saying look when it happened mm. in his life sometimes it's it's where it happens it's but but you're right if you can find sometimes there's a there's there's a contradistinction or there's something juxtaposed that is yeah. uh, this story is set side by side with yeah maybe it was with covid-19 or with mm -hmm. some other cultural event and that somehow that really heightens the story yeah yeah, so, yeah it's a lot to say there but maybe that's maybe that will help get get some that's, listeners started yeah that's all helpful acts a lot of our um, most of maybe not a lot, but most of our listeners tend to be nonfiction writers. And so mm -hmm. they are professionals working on a book or they're small business owners or they're, um, or maybe they're trying to write a legacy uh, memoir or something. Mm -hmm. So you talk about strategic delay. And I just wanted to circle back to that because uh, it seems like a really important phrase. And we talked about that in, as it relates to tension and make sure that you're maintaining tech tension throughout your, your chapter, if, if it's a book writing, but also talk maybe about how you can maintain tension in, you know, in 10 chapters. Like, how would you do that? That's a, that's a great, question I, I think you have to do that when you're writing a book i think the key to maintaining tension at, at the end at, at, with each chapter is is having something unresolved at the end even if it seems rather simple you know there's something in a particular scene in the story that that you leave the reader hanging and then when you come to the the next chapter you resolve that right away and it, it can be something fairly simple it doesn't have to be even a key part of the story but uh, you, you, you kind of leave them hanging with something that ooh, they, they don't want to set the book down and I, I've noticed that's what good uh, that's what good writers of fiction and non-fiction stories uh, will do even even some of the biographies I've read they they really do that so I think that's the key way of kind of re-raising tension so maybe it's figuring out, okay, here's, here's the overall crisis in the story. Then there's going to be another of a, a, a number of other tension points, things that have to get resolved. And I think if, if writers can identify those, you know, everybody writes a little bit differently. Some start with a more detailed outline, some start with less of an outline, but I, I would say at least have uh, you know, kind of sketch out or storyboard where this is heading and, and yeah, what you're going to do with each chapter, how you're going to leave them hanging. 
I want to circle back to your book, The Art of Preaching. Is it The Art of Preaching Biblical Narrative? The Art of Preaching Old Testament Narrative, yeah. The Art of Preaching Old Testament Narrative. So you just did a second edition. So what did you do specifically in the second edition? Why would anybody want to do a second edition? And could you talk also about the decision you made to change the endorsements on the back of the book? You know, I did the second edition because uh, the the publisher had asked me uh, about that. My editor, I think I had a conversation with him a few years ago saying, hey, I noticed that, you know, that some of these books that, that get used as textbooks have a have a life and some of them are out in the second edition. I said, if you're ever interested, I'd, I'd love to do that. And he circled back to me and said, yeah, I'd like to do that. I think the reason I wanted to is, is uh, well, maybe, maybe a few reasons. One is just updating some of the research. Uh, there's been more work done on, there's been, let me say this, there's been some work done on narrative, but there's been a lot more work done in the area of linguistics. And, and that's what I'm working on, linguistics in the Hebrew Bible. So I, th- I thought I can, I can bring some of this up to speed. I didn't revise I didn't change my basic approach, but I also realized that in, so, okay, the first edition was published in 2002. I actually wrote it in 2000. Uh, so I'm coming back to it two decades later. And, and I realized that, that some of the issues had, had changed and maybe a couple of issues. I needed to address those. I also wanted another shot at, at the writing is, as I read it, I went back and, and read parts of it, and people always told me, oh, they, they loved the, the writing, and it, it seemed to communicate well. But I, I found that some of the writing was a little bit embarrassing. I thought, man, that's, that was a little cumbersome. I've gotten better as a writer. So I, I got the opportunity to streamline some of it. And I, I, I tried to practice what I preach, and, and that is uh, be concise. And I realized that... In fact, one of my great fly fishing illustrations about a place that you and I like to fish, Dave, was like a page long. And I thought, you know, this interests me and this will interest Dave Getz, but uh, some others are going to get lost in the weeds or maybe I should say in the river. So I whacked that thing. I mean, I just, you know, trimmed and cut and which is painful to do as a writer. But you know what? Less is more. And, and I came up with something that was a lot better. So I, I feel like I, I did that in, in a lot of the book. Um, so you also changed the endorsements on the back. So when oh, yes. you got a chance yeah. um, to do a second edition, I noticed that they did a different cover. You also changed quite a bit in the, in the interior, as you just mentioned. You didn't just you know, stamp a second edition on there and, and clean up this or that. You actually made substantive changes. But the third thing you did was the endorsements on the back. And talk a little bit about why you changed the endorsements on the back. Yeah, absolutely. I am, I, I wrote the first edition when I was 40. And, and I felt like I needed some scholars with some name recognition. They were all older than I was. And I, I suppose if I pulled the first edition off my shelf, I, I know that uh, a couple of them have passed away and, and the others are you know, in their 70s, maybe pushing 80. And, and some of their names are still well recognized. But but now 20 years later, I'm, I'm pushing 60. And 
I realized if this is going to serve a, a, a younger generation of scholars and preachers, uh, I need some I need some endorsements from younger scholars. So the four they put in the back are all, they're right around 40. A couple of them are in their 30s. And so it, I really went after a younger generation. And yeah, before I was the younger guy, needed older <laughs> folks to endorse it. Now I'm the old guy. And so I need some younger generation folks to say, hey, this old guy has something to say. Listen to him. Will your publisher demand you do any marketing of the this new edition, or is that something that they'll manage completely? Or can you talk a little bit about that, how it's distributed, the second edition? They will do a lot of the the, the marketing, but they they really did you know lean on me to uh, get them the names of influencers to whom they would send the book. And I really put a lot of thought into that, and and you know tried to send it to. Yeah, people who are influencers and kind of a wide variety in terms of geography and, and what they're doing and trying to think of some of the different, uh, you know, target audiences. And then I've, I've done some, funny, I didn't do this the, the first edition because there wasn't such a thing, but I've done some podcast uh, interviews uh, on the, the book. And yeah, I, I'm probably fortunate because I have a publisher that has taken a little bit more responsibility or effort, but I really do believe it's still mine. You know, it's, it's the writer's responsibility to make sure that that this is being marketed. And I've, I've made some suggestions here or there. Uh, you know, hey, there's a conference coming up or a seminar coming up. You know, these are, these are people who might be interested and kind of shot them at times from names of, you know, hey, here's a podcast, they're doing a giveaway. They, they do giveaways. Why don't you check with them? So I, I think that's an important lesson. I, I think Dave is one who, who really taught me that lesson years ago is, is don't, even if you have a publisher, don't let them, or don't think that they're going to do all the work. You, you have a lot of work to do as a, as an author on the marketing side. And if you do the work, then the work that a publisher does will be effective. Otherwise it's not going to be at all. Back to the podcast. Is our podcast the most enjoyable podcast you've been on to date besides Two Guys in a River? <laughs> well, it really is. And, and that's because of you, Melissa. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I do, I do want, before we end the podcast, I definitely want you to tell a story because you're the storyteller, but it has to be a fly fishing story. So I want to get oh. your mind prepared for this. I want you to tell the story, the Buffalo story, the Buffalo herd story. So I want you to get your, I want you to get your mind thinking about that, but I'm going to ask you another uh, question. You are okay. working on a PhD in linguistics and I think that you're close to finishing it. I know you're working on your thesis right now. You're busy working on your thesis. What is one thing that you've learned about storytelling as you've worked on, on this thesis and on this PhD? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. It's so heavy in linguistics that I don't know if I've thought about that as much. But maybe it's this. One, one thing that stood out to me is, is that the difference between what a statement means and what the author is doing with that statement. So for example, a statement like uh, a, car, a car is coming. Well, we know what that means. It means that a, what, a two-ton gasoline-powered vehicle, unless it's a Tesla, you know, with, with four 
wheels is moving down the street. I mean, that, that's what it means. But, you know, in linguistics, there's a difference between meaning semantics and then pragmatics, you know, how something's used. And pragmatically, that statement could be used as a, as a warning. You know, if my grandkids are out playing in the front yard and they're, they're throwing a ball and sometimes it goes out in the street, I might say, hey, a car is coming. Even at six, eight, ten, they understand that that's a warning. You know, if they're waiting for their dad to bring pizza home or something, he's never going to get here. I might say, hey, a car is coming. Same, same word, same statement, but now I'm using it as, as an encouragement. And, and I think that's, I think that's been helpful as I think about telling stories that kind of goes back to what I said before. I might make a statement or I, I might quote a character. This is what the character said, but I might be using that to say to my listeners without saying it, you know, this, this character really struggles with self-image. So that's, yeah, I I think it's one thing that I've learned. That's really good. A car is coming could also mean that your Uber is coming. Like, yeah, exactly. Be patient. The Uber's coming. It's Mm -hmm. coming. (laughs) I love that. It changes. I think what, I think what that means is you're saying the context is really important and that the same phrase in different contexts means so many different things, which, which talks about this complexity that we talked about and these layers and, and why it's really, really important to pay attention to storytelling and, and to get good at it and, and to say that you can get good at it and you can get good at it by doing it and you get good at it by reading other good storytelling and just observing. I, I'm reading right now, Lincoln at Gettysburg by Gary Wills. Mm -hmm. And one of the talk about tension, one of the things he does in the opening chapter is he juxtaposes Edward Everett's speech at Gettysburg with Lincoln's speech, which was 275 words. And Everett, as you know, Edward Everett was, you probably don't know this, but he was the president of Harvard, right? And he was this great orator, and he had drawn upon all these images and and these uh, essays from Greek uh, literature. And so Gary Wills in that first chapter juxtaposes the two. Here's this great orator who spent, what was it, an hour or two at Gettysburg. And then you have Lincoln, who in 275 words changed the course of America. And it's a really good lesson in economy, for starters. <laughs> you could argue that Everett was overwriting, but you also see just the power of the context and what he did with those very limited words that he had. He was not even considered the main speaker of, of Gettysburg. So, I And think his that, audience was too, right, Dave? I mean, I think Lincoln probably was talking to all people, right? It wasn't that's right. a super elite that, crowd, which yes, is- Yes, that's exactly right. That is exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, it's very, very powerful. So Steve, um, actually, I'm going to ask you one more question before we get all to right. the Buffalo story. We so what are some practical- Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, this is called strategic delay in podcast. That's exactly right. You're practicing it. Good job. So what are some practical ways to begin developing your storytelling chops? We talked about one is doing it. We talked about reading uh, others. Is there anything else that you might add to that? It's helpful to think about the idea that you're communicating. It's been kind of a aha moment for me over the last couple of decades to realize that really about every story has 
is communicating some kind of a message. I, I wish I would have accepted that when I was in high school because I'd get so annoying with my literature classes and kind of upset that now oh, this is just a fun story and we're trying to you know get all this meaning out of it and then and then later as you grow you realize no that's that's what storytellers do they are subtly communicating an idea so i think it's important to think about the story that we're telling and saying what am i trying to convey here yeah, that's what we call, uh, Melissa used the term earlier, I like it, the term big idea. What's what's the big idea of the story? And and even to write that out in a sentence and uh, whether or not that sentence makes it into the story, we know that that's, that's really what we're trying to convey. Uh, so uh, a, a little novel, a novella that, that both Dave and I really like is Norman McLean's uh, A River Runs Through It. And uh, Norman McLean grew up in Montana and then ended up as a literature professor for years at the University of Chicago. And when he was 70, his kids said, hey, write some of the stories about your youth. And so he wrote uh, A River Runs Through It and a couple of others. And anyway, the, the thing about that narrative, that, that little novella towards the end of the towards the end of the story uh, Norman and his father, the Reverend McLean, are talking. And in this conversation, you know, Norman never says, okay, here's the big idea of the story. But in the conversation, it's so clear that he's saying, first of all, that those that we love the most, we understand the least. And then he uses that to set up a bigger idea. Uh, you can love completely without complete understanding. I, I think he makes that observation as Des says, yep, that's what I've preached and lived. That's the big idea of the story. So I, I would really encourage, I, I think one way to, to get better as a storyteller is, yeah, start with the end in mind. And you got this great story to tell, but what's the, you know, what's the point of it? And, and that'll help you shape your story. So yeah, I would do that. We've talked about Hey, just just start writing something. Choose something in your life, uh, like the story that I'm about to tell, uh, perhaps poorly with embellishment, perhaps maybe. <laughs> There's certainly no point to it, is there? Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to think of one. Yeah, you, you got to think of the yeah. big idea of yes. this story. <laughs> yes. All right. So, Steve, I, you got to tell the story and maybe weave it in. I, you can do whatever you want, but it, I, I always tell the story. But I'm such a rotten storyteller that um, that I need you to tell the story. Well, I may not be uh, much better, but <laughs> so Dave and I were fly fishing below Tower Fall in Yellowstone National Park. We had hiked up about three miles. Uh, had a good day. Uh, we we carried our bear spray with us because there's always a threat of grizzly bears in Yellowstone, and and bear spray works. I, I have a friend who was attacked uh, by a bear just north of Yellowstone. Uh, he and I used to hunt this place, and thankfully that day he took another friend, and uh, they they got attacked. But bear spray saved their lives. So uh, Dave and I, uh, you know, we're coming back. Uh, we we'd hiked a couple miles and you know, there was just this huge sense of relief that, yeah, we hadn't encountered a bear. And we're just kind of uh, around the bend from where you get to the bottom of this trail, then that we would hike up and get to the parking lot. And we saw a buffalo. I was like, well, okay, no big deal. We will uh, uh, skirt around this buffalo. So uh, we, we kept walking and the buffalo started walking towards us. 
And pretty soon we were getting a little bit nervous because there was nowhere to skirt around this buffalo because we had the river on our right side and there was a hill on the other side and we didn't want to try to go around this buffalo. It was this big old bull buffalo and, and they can get kind of nasty and you know, like there's, there's no way we're going to circle up on the hillside because these things are a lot faster than fast human beings are. So we, we kept moving down towards the river and the buffalo kept moving down towards the river. And I was making plans as to how I was going to, you know, I was going to jump in and float down the river and try not to lose Leaving my... me behind. Yes, that, that's right. So Dave and I started hightailing it down to the river and, and finally the, the buffalo left. And uh, boy, we, we walked along the river, got back up. We were, we were pretty nervous though for a while. How close do you think that buffalo was? Oh, man, was it uh, 15 yards or so? It it was close. (laughs) It was close. (laughs) Yeah, it was very close. And and I think what we learned, and if I'm telling this story, I, I think the point would be, you know, some, the, sometimes the, the greatest danger is not what you expect or when you expect. I mean, we were, we were at the end of the trail and, and hadn't seen a bear. And so, hey, we're home free. And then there's a buffalo. <laughs> so I'm going to just add what I remember about that. There That's wasn't the one, there was a herd of buffalo. <laughs> there was a yeah. herd of buffalo. Steve, there wasn't just one. And, I, and you turned to me and said, what should we do? And I go, you know what? They're like lazy milk cows. They'll all get yes. up and move away. That's so we right. kept moving. So, so that was at about 100 yards. Yeah. Right? So we mm-hmm. kept moving down the trail towards this herd of buffalo and, or bison. You call them bison, yeah, right? Bison. So, yes. um, so so we kept moving and sure enough, they all get up and they start moving up the ridge, right? Moving up the hill towards the ridge, except this one. And right. we kept moving closer and it, it stayed laying down, looking at us. And next thing you know, it stands up, it switches its tail and then starts to move toward us. And at that point, yeah. we're like, whoa. <laughs> That's right. Waiting for it to start pawing the ground. And at that point, it was uh, each man for himself. <laughs> well, I know how the end of this story actually turns out because you guys are both here today to That's right. tell the story. <laughs> we narrowly survived. Narrowly survived. <laughs> that is a great story. Awesome story. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for sharing your expertise. This is so incredibly helpful for me personally and my own storytelling um, discipline. And I know it's going to benefit our readers. Our well, listeners. So thank well, you. Well, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Great, great to join you too. Yeah. So before we say goodbye to our audience, we want to actually share our words of the episode. And Dave, I'll go first since you did progress report first. And my okay. word is Pyrrhic, and it means a success means being successful with heavy losses. So Pyrrhic victory is often how you hear it. And so the graduate's Pyrrhic victory was short-lived as he was overwhelmed with mountain student loan debt, or she couldn't celebrate her promotion. She lost her marriage because she was married to the business. Becoming VP was Pyrrhic. So I think that you've used that word a couple of times in the past week, Dave. So I wanted to make sure I understood what it fully meant. So thank you for leading me to a new word. So why don't you say how you spell it? Because it's, it's spelled a little bit different. 
differently. Right. It's P-Y-R-R-H-I-C. And actually, when I was writing this <laughs> in the show notes, I was I kept on misspelling it. So yeah, it is a tricky word to actually spell. I'm glad spell check checked me. <laughs> that is a great word in it. Boy, I tell you, doing these words of the episodes, when you see a word like you just gave us and you think you know what it is, and then you look at the actual definition, and then you see it used, you realize I, either I don't use it well, or I've been using it in really, a. I, it's just wrong the way I use it. So I love that word, Purik. That's yeah. a great word. So we'll be using it correctly now, right, Dave? Absolutely. So my word is stipple. It's a transitive verb to stipple, or it was stippled to engrave by means of dots and flicks. So, you know, if you do it with painting, it's to make these small, short touches with paint or ink that together produce an even or softly graded shadow. So you're applying something that has these small little, almost like dots, speckles or flecks. So I got this word from my favorite writer, Rick Bass, in his book, gosh, it's called The Wild Marsh, and he divides his book into four seasons, and there's multiple chapters within each season, winter, uh, spring, summer, fall, and he writes about his life in the north woods of Montana. So this is how he uses the word. Okay, but before I say this, what's so amazing about this, this is an entire paragraph. We usually ask our writers to work on shortening their sentences, but here is a, a really long sentence, but he does it well. And I think you learn by shortening your sentences, and then you're, you're, you can learn to write longer sentences, but this is what he writes. We pass over the stippled, methodical trails of deer and the seemingly aimless tracks of snowshoe hares. Across the tracks of a mountain lion, one that has probably not eaten in a while and is probably hungry because we do not hear any ravens squabbling over the remains of a kill nearby. And so I keep the girls close to me. Wow. That paints an emotion and says something without saying it. That's amazing how he did that. It's creating fear, right? It's creating by talking about the the paths of the deer and the the mountain lions. That's that's amazing. He's a great- Yeah, lots of imagery. Yeah, that's a great example. Thanks for sharing that. All right, so those two words close out our episode, but before we sign off, Dave, how about you invite people to take our quiz on the Journey 66 website. Can you talk a little bit about that? So we have a quiz that you can take. It's an online quiz to jump on journey66.com and look at the nav, the top nav bar. It just says, take our quiz. It's a great quiz if you have not yet started writing or you're, you have started writing, let's say a book and you're stuck. And so the quiz will help you identify what you need next. It's really a great quiz. You get a key after you take the quiz to interpret your results. And so go to journey 66. That's J O U R N E Y 60. That is written out S I X T Y. And then the number six.com journey 66.com jump on the site and take the quiz. Awesome. Yeah, we hope that you do take the quiz and find some momentum to move forward. All right. Well, I wanted to thank you, Steve, again for being with us. It was so great to have you here on the Journey 66 podcast. Thank you. My privilege. Yeah, we'll have you again sometime to talk about linguistics. 
Sounds good. All right. Snoozer, baby. Yeah, Snoozer. That's right. <laughs> I actually found that to be very interesting. One of my favorite classes in graduate school was about linguistics. So I, wow. I think that very interesting. All right. So that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.